Well, welcome everyone to Foothills. Glad that you are here today. If you're on campus for the first time or you're kind of been new to the church, we are glad you're here. We hope you can kind of uh, meet some people and get connected. If you're watching right now online for the first time, we're glad that you are joining us. We're here to help you navigate life by giving you the tools, knowledge, and skills to make your own decisions. It's all about making your own decisions. And our goal as a church is to turn you into a disciple. And basically what that means is we believe when you pursue Jesus, you become a different person. One who knows what they believe and why they believe it. Someone who is not gullible, uh, easily swayed, naive, or immature, or overly sensitive. But you are a person who wants to navigate life with strength, courage, confidence. You want to walk in justice, honor, and mercy. And so that's why we're here, and that's what we hope to be able to do in your journey of life. Now, uh, uh, Jesse, our host, was telling you about the guys. One of the ways we do that is we try to uh, disciple women and men separately. We do that with couples. We have couples that are in couples groups. We have uh, people by affinity get around. The big thing we do is uh, once a year, just once a year is boot camp. And now guys are a little bit different in the way they, you know, kind of do discipleship. Here's a little video I want to show you real quick. Uh, one of the challenges, we split all the guys into groups and they do these challenges. What they had to do is they had to make a trebuchet, which is a medieval weapon. And, uh, and so once we did that, uh, all the guys, they would fire it. And you'll notice a potato that they're firing fell right behind that trebuchet. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it's actually a complicated mechanical machine, right? They look simple. But then when you start building it, you realize, well, there's a lot of moving parts to this thing that got to be just perfect. So I will have you know that the record was set at about 45 feet uh, that we were able to uh, throw a potato. Not enough to tear down a castle, but it is a beginning. So uh, we're in a series right now called Unmodern Family. And the whole point of this series is to give you the tools to build a strong and healthy, successful family, which is really more difficult than ever before because all the tools you get from society right now uh, seem to be tearing the family apart. Now, your family has the biggest impact on you and the life that you live, good or bad. Okay, it could be a powerfully bad influence or powerfully good influence, but it is the number one influence. So whether it was your family of origin or the family that you have now. So today what we're going to do is we're going to kind of keep going. We started off with how to have a family and think about family. And then last week it was about marriage. Today we're going to talk about the value, the true value of children. Okay. So we really want to dig into all of the ways our society devalues children and what does the Bible teach about the value of children. Children now seem to be doing worse than in years past. You know, there's always been good families. Uh, there's still good families right now that raise good kids, but the trend line is going in the wrong direction. You know, it used to be that we would hear an occasional sad story of children having to grow up in difficult situations. And that's why I think Americans and American society loves 
uh, redemption stories like little orphan Annie, you know, who's adopted by a daddy warbucks, a, a foster child who grows up and becomes a successful athlete or a scientist or something. We, we love those stories. But society today is producing more sad than successful stories when it comes to our children. You look at just the stats. Children today report the highest rates of uh, depression, anxiety, and suicidal uh, ideation. Uh, number two, suicide is the leading cause of death of young people. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. More children are being raised in single-parent families than ever before. In all research, we're not here to say, if you're a single-parent family, you know, to try to heap any type of uh, guilt or judgment. We, we don't do that. We always tell people, look, guilt and shame doesn't help in your walk with God, right? You need to resolve it and get over it. But the issue is, is that more and more children are being raised in single-parent families, and this impacts their development. I mean, all the research shows that. Educational outcomes are dropping at an alarming rate. I mean, it's alarming. You know, it's really interesting. In Idaho, the state of Idaho is like in reading and math, uh, Idaho ranks in the top 10 of all 50 states in educational outcomes for reading and math. So we're doing a great job, okay, in that regard. We really are. But you wouldn't know that, by the way, the press reports it. But when you average that across thing is 60% of kids can't read at grade level. Almost 70% can't do math at grade level. That's not a good thing. And so we need to understand why is it dropping? The number one impact on educational outcomes, it's been proven across the board, is the parental involvement in the education of their kids. So the more the parents care, the more the parents are involved. And when you have a two-parent family, guess what? The higher the outcomes. But they're dropping because more and more children are being raised in single-parent families. And single-parent families, it's difficult to be highly involved in education when you're just trying to get food on the table and keep a roof over the head. Drug addiction is at an alarming rate all-time high among 18 to 22-year-olds. And we could talk about mental health of kids now across the board. So that's enough of the depressing statistics. Um, the proposition that I'd like to share today is that in order to have a strong and healthy family, you must value children, authentically value them. Okay? So we get this from the Bible, and so we're going to go through a few things. For, before the fall and before the, before the beginning of Judaism, in Genesis chapter 2, we read this verse last week. In verse uh, 24, it says this, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So in the order of creation, before the fall, before the formation of Judaism in the covenant with uh, Abraham, guess what? Is that the intent of the family was offspring, right? So children were a part of the order of creation. So that's very important to understand before the fall. Then, after the fall, along comes Judaism, which is the Abrahamic Abraham covenant, right? And if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, so if we flip over there, uh, we can see what did the Jews think about children, okay? Well, the Jews highly valued 
children because it was written into their covenantal law. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So he's saying this is the entire intent of the covenant on which all Judaism is built. And he says, And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So he's saying that I should love God with all my heart. The covenant we have with God should be in my heart. And then what does the next say? He says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So basically what is he saying is that the whole point in Judaism is that you have this faith and you're to teach it to your kids, Right. So that really values kids. And this was really, you have to understand, a radical departure from all the other people groups that lived around them because they saw children in a totally different light. Uh, you could go back and read about the God of Molech, the God of Baal, and you read about all these things. And most of those societies practiced child sacrifice. Okay, so this was a totally different perspective. If you go over to Psalms 121, uh, no, not 121, 127, and you know what I tell people, if you're ever looking for things in the Bible, go to Psalms and hang a right, because Psalms is such a big book, right? You can always find things that way. But that has nothing to do with our message. It's just a little tidbit that you can take home with you, right? Um, but basically, if you go to Psalms 127, uh, it, it starts with uh, verse 3. Listen to this, okay? Behold, children are a gift or a heritage from the Lord. They are the offspring or a reward from Him. In the New American Standard, it says the fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a reward, okay? Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Now, what does that mean? Well, when their enemies come at the gate and when things come against you, guess what? When, you're, when your quiver is full, you have a lot of people backing you up, right? You have a lot of people on your side. So the thing that your pastor does in your, this church all the time is I pray that every one of you married couples have a full quiver, all right? So if you're like, well, we want to have one and stop, I just want you to know up front, your pastor is praying against you, <laughs> right? So you get married, have more kids than you can afford. Do it. Don't wait. Have kids. Why? Can I rant for a second? Because when you get old, you're not going to sit down and think, man, how nice is my truck? And look at this beautiful house I live in. You know what you do when you get to my age? What are our kids doing? Right? What are my kids doing? Where are they? I want to be where they're at. The thing that brings joy and blessing and fullness and meaning to your life more than anything else is your kids and your family. Right? And then what happens when they move out? right? It's called empty nest. I call it empty depressed, right? You have to like, I have to discover my life again, you know? I have to create a life. And what do you do is you start scheming, like, how can we bribe our way into our kids' lives now that they've moved out, right? Hey, Foothills, we tell the truth here, right? You're going to get the full-throated truth, right? That's what we do. Why do we do that? Because 
Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. So, that's what I'm praying for. (laughs) Now, this is Judaism, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, well, we are followers of Christ. We're under the New Testament covenant, are we not? So now what we do is we got to go to the New Testament and see what's going on there. In Matthew chapter 18, look at the fact how much Jesus values children. He raises the whole perception of children and why they are around. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is, oh, I don't think I got that right. Yeah, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I got it right. And he called a child unto himself. What I mean by that is, am I reading out of the NIV or the New American Standard? <laughs> That's what I meant. Not that I got the passage wrong. I was, which translation am I reading out of? That's what I have to get right. He called to a, a child to himself and said before them, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a radical statement about raising the value of children. He's saying, look, you have to become childlike. He goes, whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So when we receive children and value children, guess what we are doing? Receiving Christ. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck, that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Wow, so Jesus really takes this seriously. If you go over to Luke chapter 18, you see Jesus talking from a different perspective about the value of children, beginning with verse 15, where he says, and they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. Jesus called for them saying, "Um, hey guys, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. These are babies that he's bringing up. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. So what we see here is that Jesus is raising the value of children. And my contention is is that We need to value children, and our society does not value children at all right now. So what does it mean to value children? What does it really mean? Well, I have driven pickups for over 30 years, all right? Now, my first pickup was uh, a little Toyota standard cab pickup truck with four squirrels under the hood. That thing could not tow its own shadow, but it got great gas mileage and it was a five speed. And I drove that, you know, um, took Kim out on dates and that thing. And then uh, we, you know, almost 30 years ago, my firstborn was born and there was no way in heaven he was going to fit in a car seat in that thing. Just ain't going to happen. So I went out and so I upgraded to an F-150. I just wanted that to just settle in for all the Toyota drivers, <laughs> right? Just kind of settle over the, you know, all the men out there. Because most of the men right now are up, up there. It looked like a truck convention in the parking lot up there. But what happened is um, 
I always buy high mileage truck because I couldn't afford, you know. And then a few years ago, probably about six years ago, seven years ago, something something happened, and uh, I had I I what I do, and I've preached on this before. What, what we do is I always pay cash for vehicles, and the way you do that is from very you know, as you make a car payment to yourself. So you never go in debt on a car because that's a really bad deal. And so we, so I get to a point where there's enough that, that we've been making a car payment to ourselves that, okay, now it's time to switch over because a car, you know, my truck's had, you know, 150,000 miles on them or more. And you start getting to that point where you got to rebuild the whole thing. You know, it's just easy take it down, get another used car. So I go down there and it just so happened at this particular point, it was the weirdest time had to do with the cash for clunkers thing. If you remember that under the Obama administration about seven or eight years ago, and all this stuff. What had happened is it had driven the used car market way up, but new car sales were really bad. And so the dealers and the manufacturers had driven the price of new, new ones down. And so for the first time in history, the cost of a used truck was the same as a brand new truck. I mean, it was like a $200 difference. So you lose no depreciation. It's just, it's just a real window. And the guy that's about it, he goes, this is really, really strange. He says, but what you ought to do is let's trade that and get you in that one. So I, I said, okay, do that. Wrote a check. Go back. Now, I always maintain my vehicles, right? But when I would go and maintain my truck, get oil changed, I would always say, what's the cheapest oil you have? <laughs> right? Because what? Oil is oil right? You know, because I'm buying trucks with 50, 60, 100,000 miles on them, you know? What kind of tires, should, what are the cheapest tires you've got? Now, I'm not trying to communicate anything about me other than I'm cheap when it comes to that stuff, right? So that's how I do it. Well, what happened is I got this new one, and then I suddenly realized, wow, I, this has more value, right? So the first thing I did is I looked up and I go in to get the oil change and I go, what does the manufacturer recommend for this truck? Because it's a new truck, right? And you know what the manufacturer recommends? Guys, you're going to really get synthetic oil, right? Don't you hate that synthetic oil, right? Because that means you're paying a whole lot more for your oil change, right? Because it's so much more expensive. But what did I do? I want that oil, right? What, what does the manufacturer recommend for the tires on this? I want those. Now, why did I do that? Why did I quit saying, oh, man, my cheapness is overriding my decision to what does this vehicle need? Because I had a higher value for it. That's what it means to value children is we as a society have to stop doing what we want to do with kids and start doing what's best for kids. And the reason why we are messing kids up is because we as a society are doing what we want, not what is best for them. Let me just give you a few things that have been proven over the course of not only thousands of years of parenting in Western civilization, but all research. These are just general principles that I hope that you can take with you and start to dig into a little bit and how they are different. Number one is... Children do best when they learn the meaning of no. No is the most important character development word in the English language. Child psychologist, parenting expert, John Roseman said that. No is what teaches children delayed gratification. Have you ever heard of the marshmallow test? 
You know, they could look at who, what kids are going to grow up to be successful or not based on the marshmallow test, right? They put a marshmallow in, in a room and they'd tell the kid, hey, if you don't eat that marshmallow, you know, today would be like a candy bar. Uh, while I'm gone, when I come back, I'm going to give you another one. You'll get two or three. And what they do is the, the adult leaves and guess what? Some kids break down and they eat the marshmallow, you know, and then other kids don't. Right? They don't eat the marshmallow, and they get, they get more marshmallows. And those kids tend to do what? Grow up and be vastly much more successful. Why? Because they've learned very on delayed gratification, also known as discipline. Okay? When children learn the meaning of the word no, they become self-regulators, and this builds self-esteem within them. Right? Children need to be taught the meaning of the word no by four to five years of age. It's not difficult if you know what you're doing. You know, one of the things that Foothills has done over the years is we've, we've really invested in parent coaching and uh, love and logic courses for parents because, man, children, when you raise them well, your life is so awesome. But when, you, when your kids don't do well, you don't do well. You know, one of the things is just to give you a pragmatic way that they do this. Men, the best way to teach your kids how the meaning of the word node is as soon as they start crawling, right, you sit on the floor with them. And when they crawl towards something that you don't want, you grab their leg and you just say no, right, so that they can't get anywhere. And then what happens is they do it again, go, no. And then that, that baby turns around and cries. But what happens is after a very short period of time, you know, you'll just say no, and then the baby will stop. Turn around, sit down. They'll stop crying. Now, that's really effective because when you're out at the fair or you're out at something or you're in the parking lot or something like that, and your three-year-old decides to just seize a ball or something fun and wants to go racing out, and you say, no, you want that kid to stop before that F-150 meets your child in the parking lot, right? You, you, so teach your kids the meaning of the word no. Another reason why you should teach them the meaning of it is a lack of no. If it's always yes and it's never no, guess what? It communicates a lack of love to that child. One of the best things you can do when, you, when your four-year-old says, I want this, and you say no, and they go, why? You go, because I love you. And here's something I want you to have permission to say to your eight-year-old. Why can't I have this? Why can't I do this? No. Why? Because I said so. That is one of the best things you can say to your young children. All right? Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Number two, children do best, and this is kind of building on what we just talked about, when they are disciplined. Discipline is the act of instilling morals and values. No adult has ever had a successful life without learning morals and values. Right? Have you ever had to work with another adult who had no morals or values? Have you ever had a neighbor with no morals or values? It is not fun. A lack of values and morals is the basis for a narcissistic lifestyle that brings emptiness and 
pain. Young adults who are not disciplined as children struggle with self-worth more than anything else simply because no adult cared enough to discipline them. Now, our society has redefined what discipline means. Discipline means here are the guardrails, here are the parameters, here are also the steps to achieving this goal. If you can do this, this, this. When you teach your children how to cook, you're disciplining them. When you teach your children how to do laundry, you're disciplining them. Right? What are you doing? You're saying, well, this is how you turn on the machine. This is how you separate the colors, right? Or, son, you're going to be wearing pink underwear if you don't, you know. Um, you, you teach them the steps, right? Discipline is training the steps to do something. So children do best when they are disciplined. They have parameters. They have guidance from adults, Another way we value children is this. Children do best when they develop competencies. Okay? In the 80s, there was a study done uh, that showed a direct correlation between self-esteem and success. And so in the 80s, that launched the self-esteem movement, particularly in our schools. Unfortunately, right, they did, the, the study was not, extensive enough. It wasn't longitudinal. And so what they thought is, well, if self-esteem is tied to success, then let's make these kids feel good about themselves by telling them they're awesome, even though they've never done anything. And what they ended up doing is the exact opposite. Okay. What they have found now is self-esteem only comes from competency. When you can do something, you know you can do it. Guess what? that you feel competent. Helicopter parenting today, which is very popular, robs children of self-esteem and confidence because helicopter parents do everything for their kids, right? When my kids went off to college, um, I asked them, I said, hey, well, what did you notice more than anything else? I mean, what was the biggest culture shock for you? And then both of my older kids said, do you know how many kids show up at college who have no idea how to do their own laundry? We, they can't do their own laundry. We're teaching all of our roommates how to do their laundry, you know? And so helping children how, learn how, to, how their effort produces an outcome builds a can-do attitude. This is just very, very practical. But if you have a 12-year-old, they should be doing their own laundry in your house. If you have a 14-year-old... Yeah, okay. If you have a 14-year-old, your 14-year-old, it doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl, should be cooking dinner for the family once a week. People are like, what? Yeah. If you're a dad and you have a 10-year-old, you should never mow your lawn. <laughs> okay? You see, wh now why? Why is that? I'll, I'll tell you this much. Whoever does a cooking in your house, could be a guy, generally it's mom, right? Is to tell, say, okay, if I want my 14-year-old to cook dinner, they don't, on their 14th birthday, you don't say, okay, guess what? New rule change. You're cooking the meal. Like, oh, what? How do you boil water, right? Is it starts at 10, say, hey, kids, we're going to cook dinner together, okay? We're going to have a salad tonight. 
All right. Now you need to chop the lettuce. So get the lettuce out and here's how you wash it. Right. You're 10 year old. And you're watching them wash it. Oh, this is how you do it. And this is how you do it. That. Guess what? That's a pain in the neck. I mean, you're, you're a mom that's so efficient. You can whip together a four course dinner that uh, the chef Ramsey would be proud of in 22 and a half minutes. Right. Why? Because you're bombing. You're awesome. But if you value kids, you don't do what's best for you. You do what's best for them. And teaching them competencies, how to do their own laundry, how to mow the lawn, how to cook meals, how to do all of these things is just the beginning to going out and figuring out how do I pay my rent and how do I do this and how do I do that? You know, you don't want, you know, a 14 year old will come to you and say, mom, how do I pay rent? Okay, that's all right. When your 32-year-old is calling you and asking you that question, there was a breakdown in the process somewhere, right? I say that humorously, but the truth is children do best when they develop competencies. So figure out how to develop competencies in your kids. And then here's one that is super controversial. Um, I'm going to say stuff. Uh, if you're listening for the first time, might press some of your buttons. But I want you to know up front, I'm not apologizing for it, okay? Number one is children do best when they maintain their innocence, okay? The sexualization of our children is an evil beyond belief. And that's exactly what our society is doing. If you really want to know why, then I suggest you read uh, Carl Truman's book, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution in America Today. This has become the definitive work, the Bible of what's going on in our society today, why it is. Okay? Teaching young children lifestyles, alternative lifestyles, School districts from California, Oregon, Illinois, New Jersey, New York, uh, uh, Washington, even in school districts here in Idaho about gender fluidity, gender identities, gender relationships. Introducing these concepts to young children is not healthy. It is not normalizing. What it is is it's robbing children of their innocence. In this book, he clearly articulates that our society has determined that children are sexual beings. This is based on Freudian psychology, which has been debunked by every psychologist, right? But our society has still adopted that. That's why every year in 50 states, there is legislation, thank goodness it's never passed or debated, to lower the age of consent for kids for sexual involvement. It's, it's introduced every year. It never goes anywhere, but they want to lower it to 14, 13, 12. The, the whole point is that the, when we try to sexualize our children, guess what? We are robbing them of their innocence. You may not know this, but my father was a research scientist. He was a pediatric endocrinologist. And my father was one of the five scientists in the world who discovered and started to reproduce human growth hormone. So human growth hormone today, uh, and what it is, it's all synthetically produced now. Uh, and your access to it is in part thanks to my dad. My dad spent years studying puberty, 
And this is the most controversial thing that you will hear today. Children are not sexual beings until they hit puberty. They don't care. They don't know about sexuality unless it is imposed on them. They are indoctrinated by it. And I remember many conversations with my dad where he would talk about what happens is our society is accelerating the age in which children enter into puberty. He said, just in the 20 years that I've been studying it, it's moved up over 18 months when kids enter into puberty. He goes, the only reason that's happening is because of the over-sexualization of children in our society today. Teaching young children these things robs them of their innocence. What we should be doing is we should be teaching kids basic qualities like honesty, discipline, how to make your bed, how to cook supper, you know, how to say yes, sir, and no, sir, how to be polite, say sorry, don't steal stuff. We should not be sexualizing children. That's an evil beyond belief. And somebody needs to say, stop this. Just stop. Let kids be kids. And then when they get to puberty, okay, let's have that conversation. So how do we conclude all of this? How do we bring these things together? Well, <clears throat> over the last 30 years of full-time ministry, I have used the largest relationship inventory assessment out there uh, from the Family Life Center out of the University of Minnesota, and it is called Prepare and Enrich. And so I wanted to show you one of the things that they assess is it's called a couple map or a family map. So let's throw this up here real quick, and I want them to see how it works. It's a continuum, okay? And a continuum is, is uh, number one is how emotionally close are you as a family? And it's on the bottom. You can be very emotionally disconnected, or you can be overly connected. If you are uh, disconnected, you're considered an emotionally distant family, right? If you are overly connected, they call that an enmeshed you know, uh, almost codependent, you're enmeshed. And so that's not healthy either. Then over here they have the up and down axis is called flexibility. And this is how rigid or how uh, disciplined and, and control-oriented your family is. You can be overly flexible or you can be totally inflexible, right? And so what they've noticed, and this, is, this has had millions of couples go through this thing over 40 years. It's, it's an amazing uh, diagnostic tool. What they have found is this, is that everybody who is in the extremes, if you are uh, disconnected and overly flexible, if you're here, if you are overly connected, in other words, you're enmeshed with your family, but overly flexible, if you are in this corner or you this corner, then you basically have some serious psychotic issues. The extremes cause, this is where psychosis, do you know where all people who, all serial killers across the board all come out of this square right here? Every single one of them. Inflexible, emotionally disconnected family of origin. Then you see here these grays. And then what you see is kind of like the tic-tac-toe thing in the center that's all white. 
People, you'll find yourself all over the, everybody church differently, but where do you want to be? You want to be in there. See, see, the point is, is that every family is different. Every family uh, is, has levels of closeness and levels of flexibility and inflexibility. But the thing is, is that when you're too flexible or too inflexible, if you're too emotionally disconnected or isolated or too emotionally connected, you are not doing what's best for your kids. The best thing that we can do is say, we value children. And the value of children simply means this. We do not what we want, what's expedient for us, but ultimately is what is proven to be best for them. That's how you build a strong and healthy family. Let's stand for closing prayer. Once again, Lord, we are so blessed that you always know what you're doing. Amen.